0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Please listen to the following message. It is not an ad.
1: Can you imagine a world immune to all forms of cancer? Ladies and gentlemen, the time has come for our fourth annual
0: live stream for the cure. And this year, we need your help more than ever.
1: Please join us May 27th through May 31st for 48 hours of live content from guests and podcasts around the world. We'll be aiming for our most ambitious goal to date as we try to raise $10,000 for the Cancer Research Institute.
0: Please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com for more information on this year's event and how you can be a part of it. Together, we can make a difference. She was born into the Army and devoted her life to saving the lives of others, no matter how difficult the conditions. She ran a tight ship, by the book, but not without compassion. The war gave her a husband and took him away. Psychiatrist Sidney Freeman described her as On the outside, all discipline and strength, and on the inside, six kinds of passion looking for an exit. Her colleague, Dr. Charles Winchester, found her to be part seductress, part Attila the Hun. Most people just called her hot lips. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. There has never been a time without nurses, and arguably, there has never been a time in which nurses were more important. Though what a nurse is and what they do has changed a great deal over time. The noun, nurse, was originally a woman who breastfed other women's babies, as in a wet nurse. The Latin word, nutire, means to suckle. It wouldn't be until the 16th century before the word meant primarily or exclusively someone who cares for the sick. That's not to say that medical nursing wasn't happening. It just hadn't taken on its modern name. The first known written reference to nursing as a profession dates to around 300 CE, At the time, the Roman Empire sought to build a hospital in each town under its rule. That is, a lot of hospitals, which means they needed a lot of staff. Then, as now, nurses outnumber doctors by a wide margin. The Middle Ages in Europe saw another boost in nurse numbers, owing to a push from the Catholic Church for more and better medical care. You know, the whole healing the sick thing. Throughout the 10th and 11th centuries, hospitals began to be included as parts of monasteries and convents, and the nurses provided a wide range of medical care, greater than they ever had before. Then Henry VIII of England got it in his head to close the monasteries, and with them the hospitals and the jobs of the nurses, to say nothing of endangering the health of the people in the area. Luckily, other parts of Europe where the Catholic Church remained a dominant force kept their hospitals and their nurses. Quote-unquote modern nursing could be said to have started during the Crimean War of the 1850s, with arguably the best-recognized name in nursing history, Florence Nightingale, who we'll talk about more later. The role of nurses expanded as nurses were needed on the front lines of wars, where poor hygiene led to infections that were often more fatal than the injuries. Nightingale campaigned to improve the hygiene of the hospitals treating the wounded soldiers, which drastically reduced the deaths. Doctors were reluctant to listen to her, but you can't argue with the results. Professional nursing leapt forward a decade later with the opening of the very first nursing school in London, where new nurses could receive training and education before they were sent into the field. At the turn of the last century, Dr. Anita McGee and colleagues pushed for the creation of the United States Army Nurse Corps, which became a permanent unit in the Army. A year later, the New York Nurses Association laid the groundwork for the first Nurse Practices Act, which ignited a movement to require nursing professionals to have some form of medical degree before working. This would not only protect the patients from being tended by unqualified nurses, but also protected the nurses from being thrown into situations they were not trained for. In 1921, all 48 extant states required standardized training and licensing. This began a shift in nursing duties. Prior to the modern era, nursing encompassed anything you might think of as woman's work, like washing the hospital laundry. As nurses became more highly trained in medicine, the housekeeping expectations began to wane. The War to End All Wars, and its sequel, caused such a huge demand for nurses so quickly that nurses were again caring for patients without sufficient preparation. This further underscored the need for more nursing schools, which have been established since. This was, of course, a very broad and oversimplified overview of the experiences of hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of people across history. And it's a Eurocentric one, I'll cop to that. Let's pinky promise that we'll look into the history of nursing in the Middle East, where medicine was leagues ahead of Europe. In the multitudes of nurses, a few names stand out. Not a few, many names stand out, but it's only a half-hour show. Let's start with a name we've all heard referenced, but perhaps didn't know enough about. The aforementioned Florence Nightingale. Nightingale was born in 1820 to a wealthy British family living in Italy who named her, after the city of her birth... Florence. She trained at the Institute of Saint Vincent de Paul in Alexandria, Egypt, as well as schools in Germany and France, before volunteering as superintendent of the amazingly named Establishment for Gentlewomen. Then came the Crimean War of 1854. For the benefit of several listeners, and the host, to be honest, Crimea is a peninsula in the Black Sea currently claimed by Ukraine and the Crimean War saw the Russian Empire lose to an alliance of the Ottoman Empire, France, Britain, and Sardinia. The condition that Nightingale and her 38 nurses found in the military hospitals in Turkey were dire. Wounded soldiers underwent operations in unsanitary conditions. Sick soldiers found themselves sharing food and beds with vermin. Cholera, typhus, and other diseases had a field day. This was still the period of the miasma theory of infection, that sickness spread through bad air or strong smells. Germ theory was still a decade away, so even doctors wouldn't believe that they could be contributing to the problem with a lack of hygiene. The mortality rate in military hospitals was seven times higher than on the battlefield. It was a statistic like that that Nightingale, schooled in mathematics, used to prove that changes in sanitary conditions did save lives. She implemented changes that seem like no-brainers today— regular floor cleaning, wearing surgical caps. She and her nurses reformed the hospital with a standard sanitation process, and patient mortality dropped from 42 percent to 2 percent. Civilian hospitals back in England took note and followed her example, and the idea spread from there all over the world. Saving a truly uncountable number of lives. Nightingale wasn't the only notable nurse to serve in the Crimean War. The soldiers there also benefited from the care of Mary Seacole, born in 1805 to a Scottish soldier and a free black Jamaican woman who was skilled in traditional medicine. Although they were free, Mary's family had few civil rights. They weren't allowed to vote, hold public office, or enter a number of professions. Seacole had the wanderlust and left Jamaica for places as disparate as Haiti and England, always expanding her knowledge of traditional medicine with each place she visited. She was in London when she learned how troops were suffering in the Crimean War. She approached the war office and asked to volunteer. They refused her. Anyone willing to go out on a limb and guess why? But Mary Seacole wouldn't be dissuaded. She went to Crimea on her own dime— where she helped distribute medicine in military hospitals and nursed the wounded on the battlefield, often under fire. The soldiers began to refer to this kind and devoted woman as Mother Seacole. Her reputation rivaled that of Nightingale. Working in a war zone takes its toll on a person, and Seacole was sick and destitute by the time she returned to England. The media caught wind of her troubles and heroic story. In 1857 a century-plus before Live Aid, people organized a benefit festival to raise money for her care, which was attended by thousands of people. Popping back to Nightingale for a moment, her passions weren't limited to sanitation. She advocated for famine relief in India and opened the Nightingale Training School for Nurses at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. But her greatest contribution to medical history could be said to be her writings. Nightingale wrote in simple English so that her medical knowledge would be available to anyone with basic literacy. Many nurses to this day read Nightingale's Notes on Nursing, just one of over 150 books and pamphlets she wrote, which is filled with timeless wisdom on patient care. Despite her prolificness and the importance of her writings, there wouldn't be another nursing theory published until 1948, when Hildegard Peplau, whose career included working as an army nurse during World War II, published Interpersonal Relations in Nursing. It took her four years to get the book published because it wasn't co-authored by a doctor, and that just wasn't done. Peplau was also an advocate for mental health care and mental health law reform. Another advocate for mental health was Dorothea Dix. Dix was born in New England in 1802, initially focusing her life on education, beginning a teaching career at age 14 and later opening a school for girls with a free school for girls who couldn't afford the main school. Dix found herself teaching a Sunday school at the East Cambridge Women's Prison. It was there that she saw the appalling treatment inflicted on the prisoners, many of whom were mentally ill, and she began to travel to research the conditions in other prisons and poorhouses. This tour led Dix to write Memorial, a report on the egregious human rights violations she had witnessed, which she presented to the state legislature. The legislature passed laws expanding and improving Massachusetts' mental hospital system. Dix then performed similar investigations and presentations in other states, including New Hampshire, Louisiana, and North Carolina. The end result of her work was increased awareness across the southern U.S., and eventually the entire country, that the mentally ill deserve fair treatment and considerate care. She also helped advance the specialty of psychiatric nursing. The only thing that could delay her crusade was the Civil War, where she was assigned to be the superintendent of nurses. As soon as the war was over, she resumed her work and would keep writing for the rest of her life, even after she became too ill to travel. Elsewhere in the Civil War, struggling to aid and comfort the troops was Clara Barton. Like Dix, Barton was born in Massachusetts, though 20 years later, and worked as a teacher before founding her own school. When the Civil War started, Barton petitioned government leaders to let her organize volunteer medical services and bring supplies to soldiers in need. She then asked the public to help through donations, not only monetary, but bedsheets and old towels to make into bandages. Barton spoke publicly about her experiences in the war, speeches that garnered her enough recognition that she was allowed to speak directly to two U.S. presidents, Hayes and Arthur. Post-bellum, Barton spent a few years in Europe where she was introduced to the Red Cross in Switzerland. When she returned to America, she began working to establish a Red Cross in the United States, a task that took nearly a decade. Initially, the American Red Cross only helped soldiers in need of medical care. But Barton realized there was more good that they could do, such as the disaster relief that is synonymous with the Red Cross today. Barton would serve as the American Red Cross president for more than 20 years, while also working for civil rights, education, prison reform, and women's suffrage. Education is the linchpin in many of these life-saving stories, and that certainly holds true for Susie King Taylor. For Taylor, education was more precious than it could ever have been for Dix, Barton, or their peers. Taylor was born a slave in Georgia in 1848. It was expressly, harshly illegal to teach slaves to read, so Taylor was educated in secret before going on to teach secretly herself. During the war, a teenage Taylor found herself among thousands of African Americans who had fled the plantations they were held on to seek refuge in the Union states. She was made a laundress by Union forces enlisting black soldiers for a new regiment, the first South Carolina Volunteers, but within days became a teacher to the freed slaves of the unit. The unit's white abolitionist colonel, Thomas Wentworth Higginson, wrote of his men, Their love of the spelling book is perfectly inexhaustible. On the flip side, the soldiers taught her to use a musket, and she was a good shot. When the Volunteers saw action, Taylor shifted again, this time from teacher to nurse, making her the first African-American Army nurse. She served until the end of the war, when she and her soldier husband were mustered out. The memoirs of her life can be read in Reminiscences of My Life in Camp with the 33rd United States Colored Troops Late First South Carolina Volunteers, the only Civil War memoir written by a woman of color. There's one thing about her amazing story that's been bugging me, though, since I researched this episode, and it's the picture of her that's used on every article. She looks just like an actress that I know I've seen repeatedly, but I cannot put my finger on who. Hop into the show notes for a link to the picture and see if you can help me out. You can also find the link on the website, yourbrainonfacts.com. While you're there, be sure you go to slash trivia to play our weekly quiz. Last week's prizes were donated by Deepwater Gaming, and this week's comes from Fireside Games. You can play every week, even if you just won. We're the All Creatures Podcast. Each week, Angie and I explore and share amazing details about the many animals
1: we share our world with.
0: Plus, Chris and I are both PhD scientists and educators. So we do the deep dives in the scientific research and then come back and share what we learn in a fun and casual way. We also speak with other scientists, animal experts, activists, and many other conservation enthusiasts from all over the planet. So you can find the All Creatures Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
0: As the war was ending in the States, life was just beginning for Edith Cavill, who was born to a poor family in England in 1865. Cavill, from an early age, knew that she wanted to have a life that would mean something to other people. It's probably what led her to become a nurse at age 20. In her 40s, she was appointed the matron, a position analogous to head nurse or charge nurse, Of the Berkendale Medical Institute in Brussels, Belgium. After World War I began and Germany invaded Belgium, Cavill struggled to maintain the standards in the hospital, not only in the facilities themselves, which had been converted to a Central Powers hospital, but in making sure that her nurses treated all human life equally. Allied soldiers who were wounded and starving started coming to Cavill's hospital for help. Not only did Cavill and her nurses treat the Allied soldiers, She hid them and helped them secure money and fake documents to get out of the country. But no good deed goes unpunished. Cavill was found out, arrested, and sentenced to death. Her execution received worldwide condemnation. The night before her execution, she said, Patriotism is not enough. I must have no hatred or bitterness toward anyone. Those words were later inscribed on a memorial to her near Trafalgar Square. Mary Breckinridge's life started off on an easier foot, her being the daughter of a U.S. congressman and granddaughter of the vice president, raised with the wealth and privilege you would expect. That included world travel and the best of schools, but couldn't shield her from being a young widow, losing two children, and divorcing her second husband. Those losses drove her to devote her life to helping others and pursue a career in nursing. She traveled to Washington, D.C., where she was able to care for people who had caught the 1918 influenza. Side rant, we need to stop calling that the Spanish flu. It didn't come from Spain. The best data we have right now indicates it started in Kansas. It was ascribed to Spain because they were neutral during World War I and had no press blackouts about it. Back on track, Breckenridge joined the Comité American pour les Régions de Vestée de France, American Committee for Devastated France, and received permission to organize a visiting nurse program with women trained as nurses and midwives. When she returned to the States in 1921, there were no schools of midwifery in the U.S. No trained midwives means higher infant mortality rates in areas with few doctors. Breckenridge worked hard to become a certified midwife, and in 1925, she launched the Kentucky Committee for Mothers and Babies, later called the Frontier Nursing Service, to provide nursing and midwifery to the isolated communities of the Appalachian Mountains. Addressing a similar need, there is an amazing story of a program in India that trains women of the untouchable class to provide health care and education to people in rural villages, particularly when it comes to dispelling dangerous superstitions around prenatal and postnatal care. You can hear all about it on patreon.com slash yourbrainonfacts. For the duration of the COVID crisis, which is going to go at least into summer, let's be honest, to thank our members for continuing their financial support, all members of all levels, like our newest member Maria, will receive all rewards. I've been out of work for two months, and those twos and fues are really appreciated. Here's yet another Mary, Mary Ezra Mahoney. Did I miss my calling or something? Mary is my given name. Born in Dorchester, Mass. in 1845, Mahoney dreamed of becoming a nurse, but she was African American. Her first 15 years working for the New England Hospital for Women and Children were spent as a cook, janitor, laundress, and temporary nurse's aide. When she turned 33, she was able to enter the hospital's 16-month nursing program. Of the 42 students who enrolled, only four passed. Mahoney became the very first ever African-American to earn a professional nursing license when she received her certification in 1879. Mahoney served as a private care nurse for the next 30 years all along the eastern seaboard and joined the predominantly white Nurses Associated Alumni of the United States and Canada, later the American Nurses Association. The pallor of the room wasn't lost on Mahoney so she co-founded the National Association for Colored Graduate Nurses in New York. Mahoney is widely recognized as a pioneer who opened the door of opportunity for many black women interested in a nursing career. Mahoney's struggle would be shared by Mabel Keaton Stoppers. Like Mahoney, Seacole, and Taylor, Stoppers had to overcome ingrained and systemic racial prejudice in her quest to help others during the War and the Great Depression even though she had graduated nursing school with honors. In 1922, she became the executive secretary for the Harlem Tuberculosis Committee, a Tuberculosis and Health Association unit in New York. In this important post, she saw more clearly the wide disparity between black and white in areas like access to quality healthcare and the treatment of black nurses in professional organizations like the American Nurses Association. Stopper joined the National Association of Colored Graduate Nurses as executive secretary. This provided her a more stable platform from which to help black nurses. Her efforts saw tangible results when the government integrated the U.S. Army Nurses Corps after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Even after the war was won, Stopper's fight continued, and she successfully secured full membership for black nurses in the ANA. There are so many amazing nurses. Let me broadstroke a few more. British nurse Linda Richards laid the foundation for our modern medical record-keeping. Okay, that's kind of underwhelming, you say, but it is oh so important. Before Richards put her analytic mind to the problem, each patient was a mystery, like a soap opera amnesiac every time they went to a new doctor, or even a doctor they hadn't seen in a while. As someone with a chronic illness who has seen many doctors and had many tests and tried many drugs in the past few years, I appreciate this effort. Margaret Sanger was a nurse who recognized the importance of empowering women to control how many children they have and when. She distributed information about birth control, even when it was against the law, and was behind the testing of the first birth control pill. Her entry does get a little asterisk, though, as the initial testing of the pill took advantage of women in Puerto Rico who were poor, illiterate, and had limited English, and the doctors involved didn't autopsy the women who died during the trials. Virginia Lynch is the mother of forensic nursing. Never heard of forensic nursing before? Neither had I, and I am a forensic science nut. Forensic nurses combine aspects of biology, psychology, sociology, spirituality, and cultural nursing to help victims who've suffered injury or violence, living and dead. Some work with medical examiners to advocate for the deceased. Others work in psychiatric or mental hospitals or prisons. They perform forensic examinations, collect evidence, educate and counsel victims of assault, as well as testifying in court. Some are even nurse consultants to the courts. Hazel W. Johnson Brown was the first African-American chief of the Army Nurse Corps, appointed in 1979. This put her in command of 7,000 men and women in the Army National Guard and Army Reserve, as well as appointed her to oversee medical centers, clinics, and hospitals in the U.S., Panama, Germany, Italy, Japan, and Korea. Speaking of Army nurses in Korea... Yes, I did open the show talking about MASH, and I back up that decision, because this week I learned that Major Margaret Hotlips Houlihan is based on a real person. More than one, actually. The book, movie, and TV show MASH was based on the experiences of the MASH units of the Korean conflict. MASH, of course, standing for Mobile Army Surgical Hospital. The Army had figured out that the faster wounded soldiers could be treated and stabilized, the better their chances were. The introduction of mass units in World War II had almost halved deaths from major trauma. More than 1,500 nurses served on the Korean Peninsula, all of them women, since men were not allowed to serve as nurses in the Army until 1955. Among those women was a group nicknamed the Lucky Thirteen, they deployed with the Army's 7th Infantry Division to the 1st Mobile Army Surgical Hospital on September 15, 1950. En route to Pusan, the unit came under enemy fire and were forced to take cover. Chief Nurse Major Eunice Coleman wrote about that day a few weeks later. The whole sky was lit up by gunfire and burning vehicles. About sunup, we got out of the ditch and started treating the wounded. All that day, until 1500 hours... We worked on the roadside, operating and treating for shock. We lost eight men and quite a number of supplies and vehicles. When all was clear, the convoy started again and arrived at Pusan by midnight. The nurses treated 360 wounded when their supposed capacity was only for 60. After this event, they began calling themselves the Lucky 13. Among the Lucky 13 were Janie Hall and Elizabeth Thurness, sometimes identified as Hot Lips Hammerly. The character of Margaret Houlihan's looks were based on Thurness and her attitude on Hall. Hall continued to influence the character, as she was a consultant on the show and writers were able to draw on her directly. Sadly, I couldn't find much else about these women, though you will find a photo of them linked in the show notes. In fact, most of what I found in my research was the same sentence copy-pasted on dozens of websites. And that takes us from nurses in uniform to, well, still nurses in uniform, I suppose. It was Florence Nightingale, again, who gave us standardized nursing uniforms. Prior to that, a nurse might be wearing her own clothes or a nun's habit if she was part of a religious order. Nightingale's uniforms were full-length long-sleeved dresses and aprons meant to protect the nurse from illness. It was a good thought, though it's a pity they didn't know to include masks and gloves. In the early 1900s, many nurse uniforms included a cape. These were originally introduced for warmth when treating patients outside, in those wars we're so fond of, but were adopted for year-round wear. They also made it easy to identify a nurse's country, hospital, or rank at a glance. This was around the same time that uniforms moved away from the dark gray of nuns' habits toward the clean, pure-looking, stain-taunting white. Apart from the symbolism, I can't find any other reason why someone would wear white in a job where you're liable to be puked, pooped, or bled on on any given day. Uniform dresses stayed stuffy and long until World War II, when skirts and sleeves got shorter. This not only improved mobility, but used less material so that it could be donated to the war effort. Speaking of donating to the cause, if you would like to help nurses get some of the PPE they need, Build RVA, the makerspace that is my husband's other wife, is making face shields to donate to local hospitals. They cost about a buck thirty each to make. So if you donate thirteen dollars, that's ten more masks that can protect nurses and other healthcare workers from direct contamination and help their limited mask supply last longer. Click the link in the show notes or go to bit.ly slash build face shields. Bit.ly slash build face shields. All one word. Another benefit of a uniform made of less fabric is less yardage to harbor and spread bacteria. In fact, be wary of doctors wearing neckties. Since ties don't get sent to the cleaners unless something gets on them, they're basically boldly patterned petri dishes swinging from room to room. A 2004 study at the New York Hospital Medical Center of Queens cultured the neckties of doctors and medical students. Nearly half of them were found to harbor potentially infectious bacteria, including MRSA. So if your doctor walks in wearing a snazzy bow tie, or better yet, no tie at all, give him a high five. Not during the pandemic, obviously. Maybe just shoot him some finger guns. The next wave of changes in nurse uniforms came with the feminist revolution of the 60s and the influx of male nurses in the 1970s. Suddenly, there was a real need for pants. There was even a pantsuit made for nurses in the 1970s, though I don't think anyone specifically needed that. In the 1980s, practical, comfortable, easily washable operating room scrubs began to filter out to other parts of the hospital. If you've ever wondered why blue and green scrubs seem so ubiquitous, it's because they are. The contrast of the cooler colors helps to reduce eye strain for the surgeons and staff staring for hours into the red goop that is human anatomy. There's another piece of the uniform that predates Nightingale and held on for a long time. The nurse's cap. They too began with nuns and were adopted into Nightingale's official uniform. The veil that covers a nurse's hair isn't her habit, it's her wimple and I dare you to find a more delightful word to roll around your mouth. Wimple. After the Crimean War, students at Nightingale's Training School at St. Thomas's Hospital began to disdain the longer, bonnet-like caps in favor of shorter, square-shaped caps. Different nursing programs and hospitals had their own caps. A new nurse might be assigned something with ruffles and frills called a flossy, a starched, stiff, box-like cap, the Bellevue fluff or a simple knotted kerchief. In fact, if you knew whose caps were whose, you could wake up in a hospital and know immediately where you were. Caps were bestowed on both students and graduate nurses in a rite known as a capping ceremony. There might not be a single ceremony at graduation, but a few along the way as students hit different milestones. It varied by school. Sometimes the caps would be changed completely. Other times, stripes or colors would be added, like a karate belt. Early capping ceremonies were held in churches where, before the students' friends and families, they'd be capped by an instructor or a mentor, usually referred to as a big sister. Being capped symbolized attaining the knowledge and skills needed to serve their patients. Like a high school graduation, there would be speeches and happy tears. As one speaker at a 1938 graduation powerfully expressed, The nurse's cap means to you what the soldier's uniform means to him. When this cap is pinned on your head, it means that you have become a member of one of the noblest professions and have subscribed to its ideals of service. You are no longer merely an individual responsible for her own acts. You are part of the nursing profession. But times change as they'll do. Hats, once an essential component of every outfit, fell out of fashion, and women were no longer as keen to dress in ways that could be interpreted as marking them as subservient. Plus, the caps were often fussy, starched things that couldn't be washed with the rest of the uniform, so they might not get washed if they didn't look dirty. Like the doctor's ties, they contributed to hospital-borne infections. The cap had to go but still they serve as a powerful reminder of the hard work performed and obstacles overcome by generations of nurses. I may never wear my cap, says RN Bonnie Miller, but I earned it. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. I want to thank every single medical professional and support staff who happens to listen to my podcast, and I hope that the show has brought you some sort of distraction. I'll be taking next week off because the day after this episode drops, I'm popping into the hospital to have an organ removed. In the meantime, please check out some amazing podcasts that are produced by nurses like Stat, Shocking Trauma and Treatment, The Q Word, EM Crit, and especially People Are Wild. Remember, you can always find the sources and the script for the show at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me and stay safe.